This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Brian Stever. Brian has been a mainstay on the Kansas City jazz scene for 15 years, ever since he moved there at age 18 to attend the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Even at that young age, he had a distinct voice on the drums, and that voice has only gotten clearer and more refined over the years. He's, of course, in demand to play with all of the KC area's top jazz talent, and has also played with some big names from all over the world, including Bob Shepard, Ben Allison, Tony Tichier, and Shunzo Ono. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Our latest Patreon content features me. There's a new video of me outlining a great warm-up routine I've been doing for close to 10 years now. There's so much out there that is billed as a warm-up when it's in fact more of a workout or a chop builder or something you should do after you actually warm up. So what's in that video is designed to wake up your hands and arms if they're totally cold and get them ready for the higher demands of actual drumming. Also great stuff on there from Ash Sohn, Doan Perry, uh, Joe Bergamini, Stephen Chopek, and Chuck Palmer, talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. So I was a grad student at UMKC when Brian entered as a freshman, and as you'll hear, I, along with everyone else at that school and in that community, was just blown away and kind of dumbfounded at how unique and eclectic a player he already was. It was great to hear about the experiences in his teenage years that had already shaped him by that time, and how the UMKC program and the Kansas City jazz scene has always been open to his voice and given him encouragement and opportunities to explore and develop that voice further. So there's a lot about this talk that is quite Kansas City-centric, but it's all part of some bigger points that Brian makes about expression, improvisation, sound, and the more universal aspects of the musical path he's on. So here we go. Hope you dig Brian Stever.
want to start with you is is when you and I met because you came to UMKC as a freshman. I was a grad student. Um, I had been there a couple years by that point. Um, and you you showed up from from Jefferson City, right? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, Jefferson City. I was like, here comes this kid who just like he's he's like fully formed. He has this really sophisticated <laughs> esoteric style um, that wasn't quite like anything I had seen or heard before. Like you know, not only in Kansas City, but but from anyone really. Um, and I just didn't know what the fuck to make of you for a while. <laughs> but, but I guess like my first question is like, how, how did that happen? How, how were you so sort of distinctly and, and, um, fully formed, uh, at such a young age? Oh, well, first of all, thanks for those kind words. Yeah, man. Uh, but it's like, you know how it is. You never really feel fully formed or sure. any, any kind of conclusion. So that was not my perspective, especially as, you know, when we first met, I bet I was 17 years old. <laughs> so yeah. I was not feeling fully formed, but I had just gone through a couple of very formative years in Jefferson City. Um, my family moved to Jefferson City right before high school started. Mm -hmm. I, I saw the eighth grade to the 12th grade basically in Jefferson city. And very soon after arriving, I started taking lessons with Lloyd Warden hmm. um, who lives in Columbia, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And he was just a really, really great teacher. Hmm. He is a prolific educator. If you, um, you know, I would look up, look up Lloyd and check out. He, he continues to educate uh, on a really high level there in mid Missouri in Columbia. Yeah. Uh, out of I, I'm struggling with what exactly to label it because it's a, just kind of his operation. It's it's not at his house, although when I was taking lessons from him, it was it was in his basement. I feel like I'm in a, a real distinct era of his teaching. But <laughs> soon after I left town, he got this really cool A-frame house just down the street from his residence. Hmm. And that's it seems to have really made his uh, teaching thing take off. So it might be if you look up like something about a frame, I think might be in the title of Lloyd's uh, social media presence or what have you. But right. anyway, he was so, so helpful in uh, giving me inspiration and opportunities and literally like. There was one time he drove me to North Carolina to take a lesson with somebody else. Wow. That's, the, that's the kind of teacher that, yeah. he, you know, we took multiple road trips during my high school years just learning about the drums. He, as soon as I met him, we went to the North Texas combo camp. Uh, oh, he man. brought like a crew of 10 people wow. <laughs> from mid-Missouri down to hang out with Ed Soph and Dan Hurley and... Oh, Lynn Seaton. Right. It was, it was amazing, you know, and that was just a couple months after finding out who Philly Joe Jones was, who Miles <laughs> Davis was. So, you know, just very formative years. And then I suppose I met you shortly after. There was also the presence of um, my good friend and I think your good friend as well, Herman Mahari. Yeah. So both of you come from Jefferson City, right? <laughs> Yes. And so this this was another thing. Like Herman Herman got to UMKC before you, 
right? Yeah. And so, yes. yeah, Herman, Herman showed up at UMKC. This is a trumpet player, by the way. Great trumpet player, composer. Like, so he oh showed my up. Gosh. And everybody in Kansas City was like, holy world. shit, this kid is, is just unbelievable and then you know <laughs> you showed up a year or two later and i was like what the fuck is going on in jeff city man these <laughs> these kids well, are just coming out swinging <laughs> I, I owe so much to herman for being so uh like you know generous with you know kind of taking me under his wing as someone who was a couple years younger than him mm-hmm. we started to play together like immediately when i was a freshman in high school and he was a, a junior in high school and he would always be sharing music with me to listen to and just really inventing playing opportunities for us hmm. you know you yeah. know how he is he he can make a scene happen yep. wherever he is yep. and that was already in full force in his high school years so entrepreneurial and um you know just talented to boot such prolific talent yeah really really great dude and so there we were in jefferson city playing all the time listening to like the hippest music thanks to her right <laughs> and he took off to kansas city he would invite me to come and play the the foundation right with him right so that's where I start started to meet you and like Kevin Sarovich and Ben Leifer. Sarovich, Jesus. And uh Oscar Williams. Right, right. So for, for those listening for, for those listening, the 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 foundation he's talking about is and correct me if I'm wrong, I think I have my history right, but it was the Mutual Musicians Foundation. It was the first black musicians union in the country, right? I'm not sure exactly that that asked that uh, the details on that end of things, but it is a historical institution cool, that has right. gone through a lot in the last uh, was over a century now because right. they were always talking about a hundred years going back then when I was 17 years old. And that's right. been quite some time. Right, right. So the building is still <laughs> there. Like it's, it's, you know, their what was their headquarters is still there and it's become kind yes. of just like a, a jam performance space. Right. Yes. But this is like yes. like you and I went to jam sessions in the room where Dizzy Dizzy Gillespie met Charlie Parker. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's there's heavy history there, yeah. very heavy history. Yeah, and continues to be uh, like a longstanding tradition of jam sessions at least twice a weekend. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, Friday and Saturday night, but technically Saturday and Sunday morning from <laughs> right. one a.m. to five a.m. And they were kind enough to let seventeen-year-old Brian. Uh, come and play and really learn how to play in those couple of years or right. at least get a great start. Yeah. Um, so, man, you had you had like this yet. you had this um, uh, kind of like a uh, triple threat experience of like um, a, a mentor who was really influential to you during your teenage years, um, a peer in Herman who like you guys were pushing each other. He was hipping you to all the cool shit. And, and then, you know, thirdly you had, um, uh, kind of the, the, the Kansas city scene, even before you moved there and went to college there. Yes. Um, good point. So like we talk all the time about these three things and, and how, you know, we all sort of have these things at different times in our life or different stages or different places or whatever. But like you, you had like all three of these things, <laughs> kind of at the same time yes. at such yes. a formative age. So that's that, that makes sense uh, to me how you showed up in Kansas City at age 18 with, with just like 
a, a, a really, I, and I know you said you don't feel like you were feel, fully formed, but like for those of us who watched you come to town, it was like this, this kid has a voice that's not like any of us. <laughs> And wow, he's, thanks, he's on, he's on some other shit. Like it's distinct. <laughs> um, it like, yeah, I, I'm really serious. It was when you got to town, all, all the drummers in town were like, what's he doing? What? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was really something. So like, um, what? Oh, not to mention too, they're very supportive parents. Yeah. There you go. I got to mention my parents, Tom and Lori Seaver. Right. Uh, you know, ma- making sure there was some way for me to take drum lessons and then to practice drums as much as I wanted to at their house. Yeah, that's <laughs> that huge. is like that is such a huge sacrifice. I think. Right. Yeah. And in you know in in adulthood, I think um, uh, an equally valuable asset is to be married to someone who <laughs> is on the, oh yeah on totally. the same tip, which you and I both have totally. Um, and were were your parents in the music racket as well, or did I make that up? Oh, they were. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, they are musicians at various points in each of their lives. They've been musicians in a professional capacity. Um, I have memories of very early childhood going to see my dad play at wedding receptions with a great dance band in wow. Sioux Falls, South Dakota called Mogan's Heroes. <laughs> and my mother and I would attend those functions together and we would have so much fun. Is he a drummer? Uh, my dad yeah. played guitar and sang oh, cool. in this okay. band, yeah. and uh, but the, the drummer was a good good friend of his, of course, named Doug Lund. And Doug would give me his drumsticks and let me sit at his instrument and watch him tear down and set up. And so that really, uh, you know, I was intrigued from a very early age and always planning on playing the drums. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's helpful at an early age if you like, in addition to your teacher, your mentor, whatever. Um, at an even earlier age, if you can just see somebody doing it and it like, it kind of takes the mystique out of it. It's like, Oh, you don't, you know, you don't have to be famous. Like you can just play and make a living and that's somebody's job. Um, yeah. and it, it kind of strips away the, um, I don't know, the otherworldliness of, of the idea of making a living in music. Um, so what, like, were there other colleges that you looked at or was it just kind of like a straight path to UMKC? Um, what led to your decision to go there? Oh, let's see. A, a lot of what led to it were these experiences where Herman invited me up. You know, that right. is definitely for sure. I got to study a little bit with Bobby Watson at the UMKC jazz camp. I think sure. a couple summers maybe before coming up. So I, you know, I got just kind of you you it's easy to fall in love with kansas city and all of those people that i mentioned yeah so um i was in love but i was also looking at other places i remember the list was uh there was a college in the st louis area because we were also making a lot of um trips to st louis to hear hear music and play music in our high school years in mid-missouri and siue was on that list and then I also I auditioned at NYU. I remember oh, wow. And then SUNY Purchase because I was particularly interested in studying with John Riley. Right, right. Um, so I, I tr- tried out at SUNY Purchase too. Ended up choosing Kansas City. Yeah. I, I'm glad I did. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. And like as you're choosing where to go is um, – is, 
you know, where you want to go to school and who you want to learn from sort of the only criteria that you're considering? Or are you also looking at, um, you know, the city and the scene that a given program is a part of? I was definitely looking at the city and the scene as well. Yeah. Um, those are, are huge variables. And I don't know how much I realized it at the time. Um, but I guess, yeah, having spent a little bit of time in Kansas City and St. Louis, I was confident that I would have a good time, you know, growing up as a musician in either of those places. And then I had heard great things about New York City. <laughs> well, yeah. I had no, no experiences, <laughs> but I had heard great things about the scene in New York City. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> they they kind of, they got it going, you know. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> um, so, like... You've lived in Kansas City ever since, which is going on, what, 15 years now? Yes, I suppose. (laughs) You got it. You got it right. Exactly. Good Uh, job, Zach. Cool. Sometimes the math works out. Um, (laughs) So, like, was was it ever on your mind to, like, you know, do school in Kansas City and maybe sort of spend a little time there, but then, uh, go to a bigger, badder, uh, deeper pond. Yeah, it was definitely, um, especially in college, you know, and that always seemed like what would happen after college at some point. Right. But then, you know, as, as I was going through college, I was really having a bunch of fulfilling creative experiences like right here in town. Yeah. And that, um, has just kept growing and growing since then. Uh, and it's just, I, I can hardly imagine leaving at this point. I hmm. love it so much. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always a possibility, I guess. Um, but it's certainly not on my mind really ever because I love it so much here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, um, I, uh, I, like I sold Kansas city short, I think. Um, as, as much as I recognized how special it was and as, um, as fulfilling as my experience there was, um, I just sort of got itchy and, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to move to LA. Um, and I started sort of like viewing Kansas city as this place where I would only go so far. I could only go so high, um, Mm -hmm. because it was a smaller town um, because the jazz scene was, um, you know, it's like a, it's tight knit, you know, it's not, it's not a huge scene, but there are a lot of good players. There are a lot of good places to play. Um, but I just sort of felt this ceiling and what, sure. I, what I've learned since I left is that there, there was no ceiling in Kansas city. Like I made that up when I see, oh, okay. when I see what people like Ryan Lee and Herman oh, yes. and you and Sam Wiseman and like all these people that have stayed there, um, you know, there was, there was so much more to do there that I didn't do that. I didn't see. Um, so like, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that it, like, it just keeps getting better. Um, but the scene now is very different, at least from my outside eyes than it was when I was there. So like, can you talk a little bit about what the scene was like, what you got up to during your college years, you know, during the time that I was still there um, and what it's like now and how your role on the scene has changed or not changed. And 
Um, you know, the venues that have come and gone, the opportunities that have come and gone. What's what's it like now? Oh, yeah. I mean, there. Like I said, I just I'm constantly feeling creatively fulfilled and I guess challenged by a lot of people from a variety of generations mm-hmm. that are all, just also very good musicians and available to make music with, you know, I think that's been so important and definitely a constant thing. There's always been this community that, that I guess is small and like you said, tight knit, but usually friendly, you know, very warm yeah, and friendly yeah. and encouraging and supportive and just talented mm-hmm. was world-class there, there are world-class talents in this pool of people, and that just makes everyone better, I think. That makes everyone play at a higher level, and um, that has always been the case in my whole 15 years here. Yeah, uh, There always seems to be some kind of venue to do that at. Yeah, um, I remember, especially when you and I met, it seemed like the epicenter was this place, Jardine. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that was a lot of fun because the first gigs I played at Jardines were um, very creative and ambitious, I thought, because it was with our friend Mark Lowry. And there was no the the whole point of the evening, the four hour evening was to improvise with no plan. Yeah. Just our ears and our instruments and what, however the spirit moved us. And we would often have others join us. And it was just so cool and free. And, um, the audience was great. Like I said, the musicians were great. The, the collaboration was strong. You know, there was so much trust in the collaboration to just be yourself. Right. Right. That, that's something that I've, there's always been numerous outlets for in my 15 years here. So I think that's important. Yeah. Um, And I want to stop you there for a second because um, Mark, especially, and a few other musicians in Kansas City sort of introduced me to this concept of playing improvised music that that isn't free jazz, right? Because, like, when you you think of free jazz, you think of, like, Eric Dolphy or just, like, the really sort of, you know, chaotic expressive just sounds like a fire at a pet shop sometimes um (laughs) but (laughs) but um like you said you know improvised music doesn't all sound like that and it it can sound very cohesive even very groove driven um or very like harmonically sort of um you know together (laughs) tonal as opposed to atonal but it still can be 100% 100% improvised. And that project mm-hmm. you did with Mark uh, was was a great example of that. Yeah, I suppose it was. And it was just a, a really cool introduction to playing gigs on the scene. And I'm glad because it really set the tone. Like, I always feel allowed to go there mm-hmm. in pretty much whatever gig I'm playing. You know, I, I never feel like that is territory that we cannot cannot explore. And I think... A, a lot of that is thanks to it just being a constant over the 15 years. It's It's been a constant. Just recently, I had a really great experience improvising with Clark Wyatt, who's another great keyboardist in town. But he also um, he, he made this through composed synthesizer piece that's accompanied by improvised drums. Whoa. <laughs> and that was just so much fun, you know, and I thought, wow, this is like really 
not too far removed from what I started doing here at 18, yeah. 17, 18 years old. And I'm just so thrilled to have opportunities like that over and over again, literally in my backyard, like the very, very close to where I live. I don't take that for granted either because traveling is so hard and it's hard to be away from your family. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of being accepted, um, for like you, you talk about your, you're always, um, you always feel permission to go there. You always feel permission yes. to just express yourself. And I, I definitely, um, uh, I, I definitely got that in, in Kansas city. Um, and I think it's sort of unique among a lot of towns in that live jazz is just part of its blood type. Um, mm-hmm. and you could play, you could play like kind of a random steakhouse gig in Kansas city and, get away with playing some like pretty highbrow shit. Like you're not just going to swing satin doll back there. Oh yeah. Like yeah, I, I mean, think you're, you're right. It would never, I don't think it would occur to the, the people that I'm playing with to ever put it on autopilot. Mm-hmm. You know, Every, where everyone is always going for it. It seems like even like you said in a context like this, that seems like it might be background music. talk to you about your experience at umkc um because i know yeah. it was <laughs> i mean it was formative for me it was just it was just seminal uh for me uh being part of that program with bobby um and yeah and, and doug Allwater, who i've interviewed yes. also um oh my gosh that's so, amazing yeah Love so that. like what what was your experience in school and and also what was your experience of sort of um, you know, straddling the line between uh, the academic world at school and the professional world out on the scene. Because I feel like Kansas City, <laughs> Kansas City and UMKC is such a great example of this partnership between, you know, a school and a scene. And you, you can't really draw a line between them. Like they're just, they're part of the yes. same thing. Yes, you're right. And so much of that was thanks to Herman too. I mean, every night, you would like get a text from Herman about where, where the session was tonight. And if you weren't there, it was like, it was almost like held to higher standards than you felt like you were held to academically at school. (laughs) I mean, that's how the academic thing, at least compared to my high school experience, which was very rigorous, like all kinds of AP classes and accelerated this and that. Um, Being in music school felt like, Oh my gosh, finally, this is all the stuff that I've been trying to do after all the other studying uh, is taken care of. Now right. I get to devote all my time for that. And so you just tried to get out every night because there was pretty much a, a session going on somewhere every night of the week. And somehow they were friendly about letting in younger people, you know, people that might be under 21. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this, call it the umkc program um yeah there was just so much encouragement and pressure from peers in that program to make the scene you know and to kind of thusly be the scene like you're saying it it really feels like there's a partnership between them yeah and uh, i think it i think it still does to this day it's very cool and and 
Bobby's whole thing, it seemed like, was to let everyone be their best selves as well. Like mm-hmm. you're saying, that is something that Kansas City encourages, but it's also something that Bobby in particular would encourage. Um, right. Right. And circling back to something you said earlier about how, like, um, all, you know, on the Kansas City jazz scene, like, so many generations are available to you to learn from and collaborate with. And it, it got me thinking about, I, I think that's true for the jazz community in general. Like, I've, I've lived a few different places now, and the, you know, in, in all of them, the jazz community, um, is the one that uh, I think has just the, the widest range of ages. Um, and, you know, you could be on a gig, you know, if you're if you're 21, you might end up on a gig with a bassist who's like 73. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes. You know, and, that is, I think that's a crucial element. Yeah, yeah. And everything in between. And I don't think that happens as much in other genres. Um, uh, so, like, you know, in, in Kansas City, in addition to... Um, Bobby heading up the department there, you know, as as young pups, you and I were playing with really guys who were old enough to be our grandfathers. Like I'd Stan Kessler will get pissed at me if I say that he's that <laughs> old. And he's not old enough to be my grandfather. He might old, you know, might be yours. But like Stan yeah. Kessler, Steve Ragazzi, Danny Embry, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. like all these all these guys, Rod Fleeman. Um, oh my yes what characters what delightful characters (laughs) just world-class musicians yeah so good yeah such great uh people to learn from and and collaborate with yeah that's that's another thing you mentioned i know i'm doing a lot of talking here but you mentioned how kansas city has world-class talent um and i i totally agree with you but it um i i think every uh every town of a certain size has world-class talent. Like I've, I've come to believe that you don't have to go to LA or New York or Nashville or wherever to find world-class talent. There's more of it in those cities. Um, but you know, those second and third tier cities, um, just all of them have such quality musicians in, in different genres that you can learn from and get your head exploded by. Yes. And you know, just come into Kansas city you were one of part of the welcoming committee, just so so very open and friendly and inspiring with talents of your own. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, just looked, I you know looked up to you so much, and I, there could easily be some kind of animosity in the competition between drummers mm-hmm. and you know people competing for the same gigs. End quote. There was not, you know, there's not at all, and. There's just always this warm, friendly atmosphere in Kansas City, it seems, that hopefully makes it less of a click situation. Yeah, yeah, it definitely it definitely has that. Um and I think I think uh Bobby contributed a, contributed to that. Um yes. because I don't I don't think it was terribly clickish before Bobby got there, but um he he brought like a, a really, you know, kind of an artistic renaissance to the Kansas city jazz scene that brought his generation, like Stan Kessler and Danny Embry, like it brought all of them along. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, so like your, what was your experience at UMKC? Like with Bobby and Doug specifically, like how did they, how did they take, how did they take what you were, you know, little baby Brian when you're 18, um, and, uh, and, and send you along your way 
to to adult Brian out of school? Oh, that's a good question. I you know it it definitely goes back to being encouraging and letting somebody really be themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that all the people you mentioned really did allow that. Even though Doug, when I got to study with Doug for a semester, yeah, and his expertise and our focus was kind of in Brazilian music. That was super right. cool. I did the same thing. Excellent. Yeah, it was so much fun. And I learned so much from him. And uh, I continue to be inspired by Mr. Doug Allwater. I also was able to study with Mike Warren for a semester. Yeah. At UMK. That was really cool. Learned so much from Mike and, you know, continued to be inspired by him. These are all um, other great drummers on the scene, as you know. Mm-hmm. And then Brandon Draper. I think I yeah. studied with Brandon my first semester maybe so that was such a cool introduction to things he has so much energy and can really just make you more interested in whatever you're already interested in i think and so just really enabling the student to be themselves and then i got to study with bobby towards the end Hmm. of and that's like always getting to interact with him in rehearsals and in the hallway and at jam sessions, you know, it always kind of felt like you were studying with him yep. in a really big way. But there was a semester where I officially got to like hang out with him one-on-one wow. for an hour a week. Man, so it was like so you, did, you did just private lessons with him. Yes. Man. Yes. Really special. What'd really you special. do? We, uh, sometimes we would play duo. Uh-huh. And he got that idea from playing duo with Billy Higgins, <laughs> which I pretty much think about every day. Yeah. I just, you know, what a great op- opportunity. And I'm such a huge fan of Billy Higgins. But uh, that was just mind blowing for me and uh, really gave a perspective on all his wisdom. Uh, we would do things on the piano. I learned a lot about voicing chords. Hmm. I uh, started to incorporate playing time in my right hand while playing chords in my left hand oh, as a Jesus. way to learn tunes, yeah. you know, and maybe being the root uh, to, uh, you know, just a, a song with a challenging form maybe, maybe. And that made me just feel so much more solid behind the drums. Wow. That's, that that's amazing. That because started like, in Bobby's lessons. If you, if you listen to like the, I'm, I'm realizing this now, as you're saying it, like if you listen to the fifties miles quintet, you know, with Philly mm-hmm. Joe, like, in that era, kind of in that style of, of bebop, like the piano comping plays a similar role to your left hand snare. Like you yes. can, you can hear, like if you listen to one of those tunes or listen to one of those records, like you can hear the piano and the snare sort of like having a little conversation under whatever else is going on. So you're yes. like, you're, you're splang with your right hand and you're comping chords on the fucking piano with your left hand yes yes for a period of time for a period of time that began during that semester i remember it very vividly oh it's um, heavy it was it was and i didn't uh ever get really good at it like i <laughs> would not i would not at all consider myself a multi-instrumentalist you mm-hmm. know but it it helped make things a little more functional at the piano and like i said just to be more confident with where i am in the form and so more uh, able to accompany from a place of confidence. Right, right. I didn't get into even a lot of different rhythms. Uh, I 
pretty much was playing whole notes on beat one. <laughs> but I love your idea. You know, why not? Why not, uh, you know, listen to what is Red Garland doing here? Right. What is Wayne Kelly doing here? I'm, I'm going to learn these rhythms because that would translate directly to your left hand as a drummer. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm sure Ryan Lee has done this. I, I'm sure he's been doing this for years already. <laughs> oh yes, talk about talk about a multi instrumentalist. Man, such a great great musician. Yeah, and, you know, at the piano, just a pleasure to listen to. Is that like just an amazing pianist? Yeah, as well as drummer. So like when I was at when I was at UMKC, um, I, I I again don't feel like I got everything that I could have out of it, and and you know I only realized this years later. But in terms of being a student under Bobby, I feel like there there were kind of three levels you could operate at. Right, the first one is like you just show up, right? You show up to lessons, you show up to rehearsals, and you just say, Bobby, throw knowledge at me, and he does, right? And then the second level is. If you go to him and say, Bobby, like, what, what do you think I specifically should work on? What do I need to be hip to? And like, he, you know, he knew everybody's identity sort of well enough to, to point in certain directions. Um, and then the third level is, um, I think someone like Hari or uh, Herman Mahari or someone like Hunter, whose identities are like, they, they know who they are and they go to Bobby and they say, I have a concept. I have an idea in my mind, like help me form this idea and i never felt like i got past kind of level one with bob okay um so what out of those like where do you feel you got to with him well (laughs) i mean in these lessons i felt like i was able to at least get to that second level yeah because this is during my senior year in college He's been listening to me since I was a junior in high school. Right, right. For better or worse, you know, he knows my playing. He knows what I need and more of and what I need less of, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So definitely got that kind of feedback from him. Um, And then I, you know, I remember coming with specific questions and specific concepts that I wanted to try out. One of them being the one I just mentioned. So I guess. I guess I got to that level too, yeah. but I, you know, de- definitely didn't feel like okay, I'm at the top level of things, right? And you don't know, like, you, uh, like I said, I didn't sort of perceive that when I was there, but um, you know, oh, years- yeah, I, w- I wish I could do it again and take it more seriously. <laughs> Me too. Words. Me too. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's my yeah. My time with Bobby was uh, e- even at that first level. Even even though I didn't really kind of graduate past that first level of just like showing up and letting Bobby pour concepts into you. Um, even at that level, I, I feel like I I left Kansas City a, a very different musician than I went in. Um, yes, yes, yeah. So um, you mentioned Billy Higgins. You mentioned Philly Joe. Um, and you know, we've, we've talked a lot about, about Bobby and Doug and, and your teachers and all that, but like, who are you listening to? Uh, and who do you listen to now? Like, who are your guys? Cause I still don't know. I watch you play. I listen to you and I'm like, I can't, cause sometimes you can, you can, you can watch somebody play and you're like, oh yeah, that guy listens to whoever. Like I was a straight up Bill Stewart clone for most of my time. <laughs> In Kansas City, um, well, the, Bill Stewart's definitely an influence. I okay. love Bill Stewart playing, and I feel like I, you know, I kind of ever since uh, 
really starting to listen to the music heavier in what basically the beginning of high school. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, been an influence that whole time. I remember uh, being really uh, Matt Wilson having a huge. Okay. That makes perfect sense. I don't know why I didn't think of it because that makes perfect sense. He, you know, I like, I heard some, just a small example of his playing. And then I was telling my teacher Lloyd about it. And Lloyd said, you know what? He's going to be in Kirksville, Missouri, which is like a couple of hundred miles away from where we live. But Lloyd always was very uh, stern about like, if there's an opportunity like this within hundreds of miles of you, you take that opportunity and go hear this music. Because it just doesn't happen that much in the Midwest, and that's how you get better, right. you know? So he was all about, well, go drive up there and talk to him, <laughs> you know? Always also making sure to talk to these people and learn from them directly. Right. And as you know, Matt Wilson is such a friendly person yeah. and very easy to talk to. So I, w- I would say within a couple months of hearing him for the first time, I was able to see him play live three times because he just happened to be in mid Missouri of all places. Yeah. It was in, a couple times in Columbia, Missouri that has a great jazz series. Right. Called we always swing. And then this festival in Kirksville, that was all within a couple months. So uh, that was very influential. Brian blade. Yeah. Huge influence, huge influence really blew my mind to hear Brian blade for the first time and remains a giant influence to this day. Um, Billy Joe Jones was the first drummer. uh, Lloyd, when when I told Lloyd, I wanted to learn to play jazz. He brought his ride cymbal to the middle of the room. said, you know, back away from the drums, (laughs) just play ride cymbal along with this record. And that record was relaxing Mm. by Miles Davis. So voila, there's Philly Joe Jones. And, Uh, He told me afterwards, he said, you just played along with Philly Joe Jones. You know, like that's important for you to remember for your development forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's Philly Joe Jones. And that's who you played along with first. And he was so good about expressing the significance of these, uh, you know, these things, something like the ride symbol beat and how personal it can be coming from somebody like Philly Joe Jones. Uh, And so that was huge. Yeah. A huge influence that has keeps coming back around. I feel I've I've recently come to the opinion that Philly Joe on that fifties miles stuff is like the blueprint for bebop drumming. Like, and of course, there's other greats. There's uh, you know, um, there's other great examples. But you know, yeah. if if somebody asked me if a student or whoever was like, you know, point me towards jazz, like. <laughs> What does jazz drumming sound like? I used to point him towards kind of blue, um, uh-huh. with with Kenny Clark, um, and uh, you know I've pointed a couple people towards uh, Max Roach, like early Max stuff, also with Miles. But man, I, I listened to it kind of with fresh ears a couple years ago, and that like you know relaxing, working, steaming, cook. What was it, cooking or steaming? Uh, I think they were because there's four. Total, right. I think. I think you got them okay. all four. Yeah. It's hard to remember all four in a row, by the way. I know, Congrats. I know. But that, like those records with Philly Joe on it um, is yes. just such a clear example of what everybody is trying to do <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of just straight-ahead bebop drumming. 
Um, yeah. So yeah. And, and how how a rhythm section a rhythm section can be interactive and explosive. Yeah. As a way of functioning, you know, it's just like and. Yeah, it's mind-blowing music. I yeah. can't get enough. Yeah, because, like, I mean, Kind of Blue is, like, a more subdued sort of vibe. Um, and, and um, wait, it's Jimmy Cobb on that record, not Kenny Clark. That, yes, said, that's right. That's I said right. Kenny Clark. Um, yeah, and, I mean, Jimmy Cobb is, like, just takes very much a backseat, I feel like, on that record. And then, you know, if you go more active, you get into the 60s stuff, the Elvin, the Tony, just the, you know... Um, cause that stuff's up in fifth gear, but I feel like that Philly Joe stuff in the fifties was like between the two, just, just like cruising in the rhythm section. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's so interesting about, uh, like Philly Joe, Bill Stewart, Matt Wilson, Brian Blade. Um, I mean that, that covers, that covers 70 years. <laughs> um, Jack DeJanette was huge too. I remember that also makes uh, sense. Okay. Yeah. Lloyd, Lloyd said, go find some Jack DeJanette. Like, yeah. I went to the library and they had bitches brew. <laughs> and so that's what I was checking out. And then he said, find some Tony Williams. And they had a uh, filet stay Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Miles Davis record. Uh, run. Don't walk to listen to that. It is <laughs> like so, so great. You know, um, so great. Really knocked me out i should i should check that out again because the 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 tony stuff that i mostly listened to with miles was like live at the plug nickel and oh yes oh my gosh so this is oh talk about an influence i I feel like on the plug nickel and go to sleep and let it play through the night because it amounts to about eight hours of music yeah it's a lot you get the complete box set which herman did i remember (laughs) Had delivered to his house live at the plug nickel. Mm, I remember God. seeing it on the porch, like, oh my God. <laughs> and that was like that that record and I I think Milestones or no Miles Smiles uh was sort of like went very young Tony, like when Tony first joined that group, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think so. Uh I don't know. But anyway, like so this group of drummers you're mentioning it's so interesting about Matt Wilson. Um, because I, like I went through kind of a little Matt Wilson phase, uh, after grad school, um, oh, and cool. listened to him a lot and kind of saw him live and met him a couple times. Um, and he kind of like, I, I don't know what he did for you, but it, it introduced me to this concept of just like letting ideas be whatever they are. Um, yes. It, and it was almost this, this childlike sort of playfulness um that i could never really like i'm (laughs) i'm too serious and dour a person to like go all in on matt's concept you know Um, okay (laughs) but i I feel i feel like it's right in line with the person you are because like all i suppose yeah all i really felt like yeah like here's my guy here's here's a guy who's just letting ideas be ideas and i'm gonna let my ideas be my ideas um and it was, uh, I, but yeah, like I'll, I'll shut up about Matt. It, what was your, what was your sort of takeaway from, from all that Matt Wilson influence? Oh, wow. What a question. Uh, sound. Hmm. Always, always a beautiful sound, you know? And then, like you said, really not trying to control any aspect of things. When, when I first heard him, I, the ideas were so clear and, um, resonating so much with me i thought for sure he must have a very uh, special 
way of tuning his drums. <laughs> it must take hours and hours. You know, he must have a very select few symbols that, you know, he uh, only he can touch and look at. <laughs> and then, you know, that was all I, I asked him you know, what, what notes do you tune your drums to when I first met him? And he's like, Oh no, I don't, <laughs> I don't go quite that far. Right. Just make sure they sound good. You know, you, he even said, he's like, usually there's not enough time to do such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and Oh, okay. And then you watch him and it's like, Oh wow. These drums sound completely different from the ones on the record, but you can tell who's playing them. Yeah. Um, you, he always gets his sound on whatever instrument. And I, I think that's because of the spirit of supporting what is happening yep. instead of trying to control it, you know, really and or force it in any way. Totally. And so everything feels very effortless and intentional no matter what. Yeah. You know, if you present everything with that kind of attitude, I think any of it can feel effortless and intentional. And so that that's was kind of my big takeaway. And then just such a generous person. I he would if there was not time to get together for a lesson he would just let me sit while they ate and listen to the conversation mm. and at times be a part of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that first band he came with, that crew was Terrell Stafford yep. and Larry Goldings and Dennis Irwin. Fuck. So I just got to sit at the table with all of these yeah. uh, legends. Yeah. Um, you know, being aware of that they were legends, but not quite so aware as I am now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was definitely in awe of the situation at the time, but as the years pass, I become more and more in awe of those uh, opportunities that he gave me just by letting, okay, yeah, come, come join us for this meal in between sets. I would so often go hear him at Murray's in Columbia for this We Always Swing Jazz series, mm-hmm. and they play an afternoon show and an evening show. And there's like not enough time to do a drum lesson in between those because they eat. And so he would just let me hang out while I ate. Right. How annoying must that be? But they're very kind, very, well, very kind and accepting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure all of the guys in that band, uh, you know, I would imagine they're all the same way or they were at least tolerant of yes. like, you know, yes. Matt, Matt doing that. Um, the, yeah. T- tolerant, engaging with the conversation and just hilarious, <laughs> hilarious individuals. It was, it, it was such a great behind the scenes look to you know, make these people seem like okay there's humans yeah. behind these magical sounds that are happening on stage it's possible right it's somewhat attainable at least some version of it yeah it's so interesting what you said about just sound like the sound of the drums um and that like when i think of matt's playing um you know talk talking about letting things be what they are letting ideas be what they are but he like i think part of the reason that he's able to get so much mileage out of so many simple ideas is because like you said, he's, he's focused on sound. He's not necessarily focused on content. Like he's in love with the sounds of the drums. And Mm -hmm. you know, when you ask him like, what, you know, what notes do you turn tune your toms to or whatever? He's like, no, I'm not about that. I'm about like, let's get it to sound good to me right now in here. Yeah. And that, yeah. I mean, that could sound like anything, right? But if he mm-hmm. finds a sound he likes, he can express with it. Um, yes. Which is such a basic concept. Like we're, so, you know, we get so wrapped around the axle of the drumminess of it all, um, which, you know, it, it has its place. But like just the idea of like getting a beautiful sound out of one note and then 
doing it again and, <laughs> you know, just building with such simple building blocks. Um, yeah. Matt, Matt and really is, trying to everything you play, uh, present it in a way that's like kind of seems like you might enjoy it. You know, I think it's easier to persuade the audience to enjoy it themselves. Yeah. If it comes from this place of like, I'm proud of what I'm playing instead of I'm ashamed of what I'm playing or, or it's not quite what I thought it was going to be. You know, there's never, it never goes there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy to like, if you, if you, uh, if you go for too much, um, uh, for me, at least it can, it can put me in that like, ah, I wasn't proud of that. Like, it you know it it came off like it wasn't a train wreck but i you know i should have gone with something simpler that i could be prouder of <laughs> oh yeah and yeah that's just not a good headspace to find yourself in i yeah. guess when you're trying to perform and express yourself further Like in terms of your expression, in terms of your sound, like what what are your goals for yourself? Like what are you working on right now? What's a project that might take a couple years to come to fruition? But like because I see you on IG, you're always you're always just kind of like you know videoing what looks like uh, jam sessions for one. You know it doesn't. Oh yeah, sometimes sometimes <laughs> it's just a drum solo. Yeah, I mean it doesn't it feel does. like you're practicing, right? Like some people. Yeah, like, you're you're just kind of exploring on the drums and every time you show up there you're exploring just a little concept or a little melody or a little motif or a little idea um mm-hmm. so like what what is kind of the the project that you're working on in your own playing and your own expression well i guess uh in those instances some of that is like testing out different sounds different tunings on especially like bass drum sound it seems like that is always something that's like a pendulum swinging from one direction to the other. Even oh. like within a week, I'll go like super loose, <laughs> super unmuffled, super loose, super muffled, uh, all the way in the other direction, like with all those things. And some, some of that is just trying to be like, okay, what does it sound like in front of the drum set as opposed to behind the drum set? Um, and then some element of that is practice, I think, idea completion, feeling like, okay, am I playing what I hear? You know, to do that without much more parameters mm-hmm. is, I think, an important part of any practice routine. Um, I mean, that's kind of that's just what's going on with the drum solos. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, and they, they like they are they are like you know very musical sort of drum solo concepts. But I I, I said it doesn't seem like you're practicing, but I know you are. Um, but what, what you're practicing, it, it doesn't feel like you're trying to get better at the drums. It feels like you're practicing exploration and you're practicing, oh, yeah, sure. you know, um, you're, you're practicing improvisation basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I feel like if you can, uh, maintain some kind of fundamentals where you feel comfortable with your hands, then that's kind of the next step being able to explore, in a way where you're, you're not running across dead ends, whether they're physical dead ends, you know, so there it's important to have some fundamentals maybe in the practice routine or <laughs> mental, you know, mental dead ends to say like, um, you know, just, 
to just come from a place where it's like, I wish this had been that instead mm-hmm. to always be proceeding with like, okay, that was the idea that came out. Yeah. So the rest of the development, uh, however motivic has to be based on that, whether it was intentional or not, it's, it happened. So that's kind of a good practice for me. Cause it's, it's tough to avoid those dead ends on in, in any context, even with an ensemble. Yeah. Um, so much of my practice, there's like, uh, I don't know if this is the best habit, but so much of my practicing lately has been just um, referencing recordings from gigs. Hmm. You know, if if I play uh, four sets in a night, then I might record one of those and check it out with a critical ear. Mm-hmm. Either either very soon after or not so soon after. Um, but that that has really helped me, especially in terms of my of physical approach. You know, re- really highlighting uh, bad habits yeah. with posture. Yeah, what bad habit? Talk to me about that. What are you seeing? <laughs> oh, I, I am often uh, fighting against this urge to hunch over. Yeah, you know, and to have tension anywhere, but especially tension in my shoulders and face. It hmm. seems like that is, is most difficult to squash from the shoulders and face. And so that has just, of course, been a very slow project, you know, I guess as terms of what I'm working on, I'm always trying to have no tension yeah. for any reason, you know, so that, that it seems like really checking out my posture in some kind of visual way. Uh, that has helped a lot. Um, else? I mean, I really am a fan of Alan Dawson's rudimental ritual. Oh yeah. I think that is a great way to keep your hands like feeling like drumming is easy not so difficult Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) to keep that that in some kind of regular rotation to become really familiar with that and the ins and outs and even taking sections of it and, um, making them work for you or whatever you're trying to work on at the moment. Right. At the moment, I would say as small details goes, if I have something that I'm trying to work on whenever I play or practice, it's accuracy with my left hand getting rib shots in traditional grip. Mm, Yep. You know, that answer is almost too boring and specific, but it is true. (laughs) No, it is true. Yeah. Yeah. And because I, mean, I saw I go ahead, go ahead. Well, you're you're a switch hitter, right? Like, I mean, I've yes, I've yes. seen you just like switch back and forth eight times. I love to switch. I love to switch all the time with reckless abandon. But I noticed <laughs> I noticed that I was always playing uh, rim shots with a matched grip. And I thought, why is that, Brian? And then I started practicing rib shots with the traditional grip and it's like oh that's why yeah it's not you know you can't count on it so you never do it so that's something that i'm practicing now and hopefully it will pay off i'm just not even thinking about that because it might be uh very many months or years into the future that that kind of practice pays off um and then i always be trying to work on my ride symbol aren't we all um that is i think an important thing to kind of keep in the epicenter yeah Um, um, it's, it's one of the things I tell, you know, my students, especially those who are just starting out or, you know, people I'm giving advice to on Reddit or whatever, like nice. just, just play the fucking ride symbol. Don't worry That's about good. your left hand. Just get your ride symbol going, get that sounding good. 
and then we'll yes. worry about the rest. Um, but go okay. Going back to your left hand for a second. What like why are you a switch hitter? I don't know if I've ever asked anybody this on the podcast, oh, but like that's a good why question. why won't you choose? Because I chose, and and other people choose for different reasons. But some people. What's your choice? I I went matched. Aha. Okay. Went, when did you choose? When did you choose? I chose five years ago because whoa. Yeah. Okay. For a long time, I was a switch hitter like you. Okay. But okay. I, I wasn't really a switch hitter in the sense of switching like mid song. I was okay. I was playing jazz mostly traditional, and I was playing everything else mostly matched. And okay. I got to the point where I I had to come to grips with the fact, pun intended, um, that my my traditional grip just was not as strong. It was not as fluid. It was not as fast. It was not as uh, durable as my matched grip. My matched grip has just always been stronger, faster, better. Um, but because I had always played jazz traditional grip, like all my feel, all my touch for jazz, all my swing was in the traditional grip. So, oh, interesting. So my choice was either start from square one with my traditional grip and build it up right so that it is as, like you said, reliably strong and fast and all the other shit as the match grip or go matched and just get my left hand matched grip to swing and have that jazz touch and, and all that. So I, I chose option B. So why? Wow. Why? And five years ago, do you like know what day? You yes, did this act? absolutely. I was would on, you, would you share it with us? Uh, absolutely. I was on tour with, um, the Equinox orchestra, which is like a, okay. ten, a 10 piece kind of Harry Connick jr. Kind of outfit. Awesome. Um, okay. Uh, and I was mid tour, um, and I had been playing the whole thing, uh, trad. Um, and like I said, I like, you know, there was every night I had to play a solo. Um, and I just got to this point where like, I, I felt like my trad was sort of betraying my ideas. Like it wasn't strong enough. It wasn't fast enough. It wasn't, it didn't have the endurance to do what I wanted to do on the drums. Okay. So okay. I, I, uh, I said tonight I'm I'm playing tonight's gig all matched, and I might swing like a numb left arm. I like, but I'm just gonna see what happens. And um, there were definitely some times during the gig when I felt like my you know my matched left hand just didn't quite have the subtlety, the nuance that I wanted. But the endurance was there, the speed was there, power was there when I needed it, and. Um, after that, so like I, I felt good all throughout that gig, and then after the gig, like half the band came up to me and was like, "Man, you played a great fucking solo tonight. What was that okay, about?" Okay, interesting. They, interesting. Yeah, interesting. and they didn't even notice. Not holding back this time, perhaps. <laughs> you know, yeah, like they didn't even register that I had switched grips or whatever. They just uh -huh, like sure, yeah. registered what they were hearing from the drums. So between how I felt during that gig and kind of the feedback after, I was mm -hmm. like, "That's it. I'm I'm switching." That's it. And yeah, and that gives you more time to just like focus on that approach yeah. yeah and you know the way that all the angles work out with that approach i totally i totally can see why you would want to do that i think for me it was just uh kind of wanting to uh imitate what i saw from most jazz drummers especially of a certain era mm -hmm. uh and so that that kind of started and then there's just something about the um 
touch from the weight being on the bottom of the hand. Yeah. Or excuse me, the weight being under the stick versus the weight being over the stick. Right. And and then like right away, I remember I just really had to get both in order because uh, it it was marching band, <laughs> a lot of rudimental stuff. Yeah. Was uh, traditional. And concert bands, a lot of the, you know, that was all matched. Yeah. So I just had, I had to be really good at both. And uh, it seemed like that was just always, I don't know. There were, there was just always opportunities to really utilize both approaches. So I never decided. Right. Right. And did, were you ever faced with uh sort of like um, a disparity between the two? Like, did you have to kind of like, say oh like, well, right now i would say what well, you know what, <laughs> right what i'm the describing <laughs> yeah with the rim shot thing is quite a disparity you know at least it, it feels like it it feels like i'm making progress because i really try to do it uh i force myself yeah you know yeah. okay i'm gonna i'm gonna play this whole first set just <laughs> just uh traditional no matter what you know no matter what happens if you, even if there's backbeat after backbeat brian right. <laughs> And so, you know, you put yourself out there a little bit at a time and that disparity decreases. I think there is a disparity at first, too. But Lloyd was such a good teacher that it was just like, you know, practice this and this and this. You, oh, you feel a disparity? Then practice it both ways. You right. know, it was just always sort of that simple. Well, then you got to practice both. Yeah. <laughs> and I think like I, I let the disparity uh, uh, linger for too long, oh, okay. I think, because okay. I was I was aware of it long before I sort of reached this crossroads on tour mm -hmm. you know um and yeah so like from an from an early age you were kind of developing both and and keeping them on par with each other whereas i i was not <laughs> yes um, i hear you i hear you yeah it's just you know yeah so i i really i can't decide which one i would let go <laughs> so I'm, I'm just gonna keep both around i guess yeah <laughs> yeah um well, cool, man. I, I, I think we're, uh, about out of time. Um, Oh wow. That really flew by. <laughs> wow. I, I, there must be some mistake. I can't believe you called me looking at the, the list of names of people you've spoken with for this show. I can't, can't believe it. No, I this is, very, this is uh, not a mistake to be, this is not uh, a mistake at all. Not, <laughs> not a mistake at all, man. You're, you're one of the, you're one of the Kansas city cats. And I mean, you're one of the uh, you're one of the longest established cats in Kansas city at this point. Um, wow. as far as drums go, I mean, you're still in your thirties, but like, um, you know, Doug is still there, but like you've, you've been, you've been there for a long time. You've been there twice as long as I was there. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess. But, but so many of those people you mentioned and countless others have been here way before me. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it yeah. never really was like that. Uh, you know, you mentioned, Sam Wiseman, Brandon Draper, and then uh, the recently passed Tommy Ruskin. You know that felt right. like that was Tommy. Uh, the recently passed Marvin Jones. Oh my gosh! Talk about a, a history of amazing drummers here in Kansas City. It was funny when when um, <laughs> when Brandon first got to Kansas City. Like I uh, I I got Brandon got into my head. Um, okay, because like I was. I was super intimidated by Brandon and it was nothing he did. It was nothing he said. He was, he was nothing but cool. But like, I, I got it into my insecure head that like, this guy's going to take everybody's fucking gigs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and of course he didn't, he just, he created his own gigs, not unlike Herman, oh, yeah. like he just created a whole other wing of <laughs> the Kansas city jazz the, the, scene. The more, the merrier it seems is always the case. This rising tide lifting all of totally. Those, yeah. The way, the way to see it. Um, yeah. Especially in a scene like this, the gigs are not, I wouldn't say they're scarce, you know? No, not at all. I mean, there's tons of places to play. There's tons of opportunities. There's, um, you know, it's not saturated. I feel like there's, there's work to go around and there's a place for everybody's voice in that scene musically. Um, you know, there's a, there's a place creatively and there's a place physically, um, for you to kind of like be yourself, whether it's green lady lounge or Corvino or the ship or, Help me out. There's blue room still the around. Blue room. Yeah, the yeah, blue yeah. room. I saw Jeff Tane Watts at the blue room just a couple of days ago. <gasps> uh, seeing him live for the first time ever, you know, just a couple of feet away from him. It was a totally life changing experience, man. That was with a Harold O'Neill, Harold O'Neill's trio and Dominique Sanders on the bass. Whoa. Those I'm, two guys, I'm sure you and Dominique crossed paths. We did. Uh, and we like, we played together a little bit. Like, I was kind of awesome. I was kind of on my way out as he was coming up, um, okay. But yeah, God, what a what a player he was, and I could, yes. <laughs> I, I like even though I was like I don't know eight years older than Dominique, I was like I'm not on this guy's level like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ooh, yeah, he is. He's definitely wise and talented, far beyond his years. Yeah, I know he's definitely. for sure. <laughs> um, well, man, it was it was great talking to you. It was great catching up with you. Um, yeah thanks again for the invite zach i really am appreciative and it's so great to catch up with you yeah absolutely uh, Um, after after all these years yeah it's great to see you uh thriving just creatively and and professionally um it's you know it's it's a testament to to your um uh your your voice on the drums and just your identity as a musician and it's also a testament to to kansas city and how it just you know it gives a home to uh, amazing voices like you and Herman and, and everybody else. So I know you said you said never say never. Maybe you'll go somewhere else, but I think you're you're in the right place, man. I feel like it. I feel <laughs> like it's all meant to be. Thanks to Brian Stever for that talk. One of a kind player, one of a kind dude for sure. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with percussionist Jim Brock, whose credits include Joe Cocker and Joe Walsh, among many others. Once again, sign up for the DrumClick newsletter for discounts and deals on some great gear and digital products. Go to thedrumclick.com and click on sign up for our newsletter. Have a good week. Stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.